Hi, this is Sandy Rios, and this is today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. Wow, if you have a comment to make, you can call us at 662-821-2040. That's 662-821-2040. Or you can go to sandy at AFR.net and actually send an email. Wouldn't that be some thought? Sandy at AFR.net. I want to tell you that we finally... Have our website up and running. I'm happy to report sandyrios.com is fully functioning. And you can listen to the sh- show through that if you like, or you can find out other information about uh, about the show and other things that we've done in the past. And also a companion to that, which is linked from that page, is sashasong.com. It's a brand-new website uh, that talks about the life of my, my, my daughter, my firstborn. Uh, and uh, it's pretty interesting, and I think that you might, some of you might benefit from that. It's a... Uh, so it says sashasong.com. History was made on June 24, 2022, when a 50-year-old law was overturned in a landmark ruling, and that was Roe versus Wade. It finally was overturned. We've been working for that for decades. You know, pre-born, unborn babies' lives matter today, and we need to make sure that they matter for future generations. And as we celebrate that one-year anniversary, and boy, we do celebrate the fall of Roe versus Wade, we have to continue to do our part. We have to reflect and recommit and reinvigorate our resolve to unite and do more. Uh, so what do you ask? Well, uh, with preborn, you know, we usually ask you for some help supplying uh, ultrasounds to these moms who are confused and not sure they want to keep their babies, and it's, it's a wonderful way to, to, to stop them and help them to understand what they're actually doing in the process of abortion. Over the last 50 years, there have been 64 million babies whose lives have been taken as a result of that decision. And so we thought it might be appropriate in honor of, in honor and memory remembrance of those little ones uh, to ask you for a donation of $64. If that's something you can afford, we would be so grateful. And you know that Preborn will use that money wisely uh, to help more babies, future babies, that perhaps your name, you'll hear about them in the future. If we find out names and stories, you know I'll bring them to you. You can go to preborn.com slash sandy. Preborn.com slash Sandy, and we're asking for $64. But, of course, if you can only afford $4, we'll be very grateful. Just go to Preborn.com slash Sandy. Uh, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, we have a show to do today, and, of course, it's it's pretty interesting. I, I think what I'm going to do is play, uh, let you hear this report from Alex Wagner of MSNBC, which will kind of help you understand what we're going to discuss today. Here it is. One of the key players in the aftermath of well, former President Donald Trump's actions after losing the 2020 election are still the subject of federal and state investigations. Conservative attorney John Eastman today began defending himself against 11 disciplinary charges brought by the State Bar of California. The hearings are scheduled to take more than a week. and At the end, the court could recommend that Eastman's license to practice law in the state be suspended or revoked. Eastman was hired by Donald Trump to represent him in December of 2020 in connection with the 2020 presidential general election, including matters related to the Electoral College. In that capacity, Eastman drafted a memo in which he argued that then-Vice President Mike Pence had the power to overturn the election results while presiding over the counting of electoral votes on January 6, 2021. That theory of course, underpinned much of the rage against Pence by the mob that stormed the Capitol that day. But this disciplinary hearing is not the only major consequence that Eastman may be facing. FBI agents seized Eastman's cell phone last summer, reportedly at the behest of the Justice Department's Inspector General. 
also last summer. Federal judge agreed that his emails should be released to congressional investigators because he found it, quote, more likely than not that President Trump and Dr. Eastman dishonestly conspired to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. And last winter, the January 6th investigation in the House referred Eastman to the Justice Department for prosecution. Presumably, that referral, along with whatever the FBI found on Eastman's cell phone, had been passed on to special counsel Jack Smith, who's yet to announce any results of his criminal investigation into January 6th. Well, so is John Eastman a criminal? Is he uh, a liar? Uh, what is he? Well, we'll find out his side of the story coming next. John Eastman joins us mid-trial out in California on this edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. Well, I tried to follow your report. Mr. Donald Trump Jr. would have called it a, a nothing burger. You got no convictions. You got nothing. It was all set up to hurt the Mueller report, which was correct and was redacted, to hurt the Bidens and to help Trump. And you were a part of it. You have a good reputation. You had a good reputation. That's why the two Democrats supported you. But the longer you hold on to Mr. Barr and this report that Mr. Barr gave you as special counsel, your reputation will be damaged. As everybody's reputation who gets involved with Donald Trump is damaged, he's damaged goods. There's no good dealing with him because you will end up on the bottom of a pyre. I yield back the balance of my time. All right. That cheerful message was from Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee uh, threatening John Durham because of his report saying there was no Russian collusion. But the last part is what applies to this discussion today. You will be Uh, he's damaged goods. Trump has damaged goods. And any kind of contact you have with him or any perceived support, you will be be on a pyre. And as I understand, pyre is like funeral pyre. I think that's what he actually said. This is how badly the left and many, many Republicans, too, hate President Trump and anyone associated with him. And that is why our next guest finds himself in a very serious situation, and has been one of the bravest men I've ever had the privilege of uh, witnessing his conduct in this. And his name is John Eastman. John uh, was a dean and professor of law at Chapman University. He's a highly published attorney. He clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. He's the past chair of the Federalist Society, and there's a lot more to say about John. But John was uh, President Trump's attorney, uh, in 2020, when this election, all this stuff was coming in, we were watching these election returns from these states. Uh, all of us knew there was, most of us knew something wasn't right. Well, John took up the the banner of uh, helping President Trump navigate all of that. He spoke on January the 6th, which was also anathema for him. And now after uh, losing so many of his positions because of his affiliation with Trump, uh, he did. He lost jobs. He lost associations. Um, all kinds of things. 
and been criticized and criticized. Uh, he now stands trial with the threat of losing his law license and his livelihood in California. And so I've asked John to join us. It's early morning for him. And so, John Eastman, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on, Sandy, and thanks for all the good work you do uh, exposing to a wide audience uh, the, the, the kind of authoritarian moves of our government that we're dealing with. Um, we'll get into that and what happened last week in my California bar trial in a minute. But uh, uh, we, we really have uh, crossed the Rubicon here. And I think the reason they're going after Mr. Durham now is because he shined a light on it. Uh, we had, for the first time in our history, uh, the institutions of government weigh in to try and decide an, a presidential election. I mean, you recall President Nixon hired some outside people to spy on the opposite campaign <laughs> and, and, and was threatened with impeachment and ultimately resigned over it. Uh, the Democrats in charge actually used the institutions of government to phony up a false uh, affidavits to get FISA warrants to spy on the opposing political campaign. They continued to spy on that campaign and that president after he was elected and continued to do so after he was inaugurated. This is the biggest political scandal in our nation's history. And yet the Democrats want to, uh, you know, slide it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Uh, and, and, you know, if we let that stand without any dramatic consequences for the players involved, then we are no longer self-governing people. The government controls us, and we have ceased to be citizens and have become subjects of our tyrannical government. The irony is, John, that most people faced with the kind of opposition, and really we're, we are in a wash with really propaganda that is, uh, I've been watching, I love foreign movies. I've been watching a, a German movie about East Germany and the oppression. I actually lived there in 1974. Uh, I saw it myself, but it really plays out how people there were oppressed and made they made it the... The powers, the controlling powers, made it almost impossible to resist being part of the system and agreeing to the lies. And we saw that, of course, in the old book, 1984. Uh, but, but I have to say that somehow, at this point, you have resisted compromise. You have just been so steadfast. And I, I, I know this is probably should be at the end of the show instead of the beginning. But honestly, John, what, what gives you that resolve uh, to continue to sta- stand fast on what is the truth as you know it? Uh, facing all of these odds and all of this criticism and this financial devastation, losing your lost license, all of it. What, what is it that's keeping you going? Well, you know, uh, I'm a devout Catholic. Uh, uh, one understands that the things of this world are not the things that ultimately matter. Um, and so standing true to the truth, standing up for the truth, uh, fighting against calumnies uh, against me uh, in order to advance the truth or highlight the truth, is important in the long run. It's much more important than anything they can do to me on this earth. And, uh, and, you know, and then my wife and I came to a realization, uh, you know, it's been quite a roller coaster ride of of emotional highs and lows on this. Uh, One of the lows is when the bar actually followed through and filed the notice of disciplinary charges against me last January. Uh, And over the course of the next week, we realized, you know, my whole career, my education, my Ph.D., my law degree at one of the top law schools, then the top law school in the country, uh, my clerkships with Justice Thomas, my professional career as leading a a major public interest law firm devoted to constitutional uh, issues uh, for separation of powers and the limits on government. All of that had equipped me to be able to 
fight back against what's going on, perhaps as well as anybody else in the country. And, and uh, uh, you know, I'm constantly reminded these days of Patrick Henry's old uh, Patrick Henry, no, Thomas Paine. Uh, these are the times that try men's souls, um, and the distinction between true patriots and summer soldiers or summer patriots, those that will wilt, you know, in the first uh, first uh, sight of adversity. And uh, uh, I think we need more true patriots to kind of stand up to recognize what is going on in our government and to insist that we, the people, are still sovereign if we will simply exercise that sovereign power we have and push back against the kind of things that are going on. Yes, and I want to make it clear, too, that uh, the, the implications for all of us, this is John's life, his livelihood, and it's important to me, even if it didn't affect me, but it will affect me, and it will affect all of you. Because if John, uh, if they manage to destroy his career completely and keep him from practicing, who's going to defend us? Who's going to defend us? Who's going to have the courage to stand against this huge machine? Uh, and the answer is probably few to none. And so John's position is extremely important for a number of reasons. I also, you know, courage breeds courage, John. And uh, when people see your courage, they kind of step up. As a matter of fact, now I know that we can't, uh, I, I want to commend to people this interview you did with John Klingenstein, who's the chairman of the board for the Claremont Institute. I, I have it on my uh, Twitter feed. It's at Sandy Rios Tweet. For those of you who, if this is the first time you've heard this, that's a good place to follow me, at Sandy Rios Tweet. I've got that conversation with John Klingenstein because it's, it's wonderful, John, and you, you go through everything. But we have to touch on some things for this conversation. I know it's tedious, and you're right. You are so good at articulating. Part of this was, um, you said, I read, that you said you believe this whole trial is a referendum on the election of 2020. Can you can can you tell me why you think that? Well, you know, you look at uh, and the information is all publicly available on the uh, state bar's website. Uh, I've got a link to it at my uh, Legal Defense Fund website, givesendgo.com/eastman, and I would encourage people to go there. Obviously, if they have the wherewithal to make donations to help with this very expensive effort, but also to send prayers. But more importantly, for this purpose, uh, we post updates of what's going on there, and so people can to, can find it, including the live stream link for the trial. But the reason I said that is it's a I, I forget 38 page. 85 paragraphs, 11 counts uh, of charges against me, that when I said things like uh, we have, you know, massive evidence of illegality and fraud in the election, um, and uh, I said that on Steve Bannon, and they said that's a false statement because there's no evidence of illegality and fraud, certainly not in uh, sufficient numbers to have affected the results of the election. And so uh, to prove that my statement was false, they have to, in fact, um, you know, relitigate the entire election. And then to prove that uh, it was knowingly false, they have to prove that, you know, it was so incredible, those kind of claims that were being made, that no reasonable attorney would have made them. And so that's what puts the entirety of the election challenges, uh, the claims, the things we all saw with our own eyes, on trial. And so it really is, you know, the, 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 the more than 70 million Americans that think something very wonky went on with that election – it, it's a trial of them and their beliefs and what they saw with their own eyes, whether it was, you know, in Detroit, the boarding up the, the counting center so people couldn't observe or in, in Georgia in the State Farm Arena, 
telling people to go home that they were done for the night and then and then uh, starting recounting again uh, in violation of Georgia law um, uh, or or you know the uh, an organization in Nevada that was actually offering uh, gift cards and lottery tickets and t-shirts for people if they voted <laughs> um, you know it, blatantly illegal uh, uh, in Wisconsin, this so-called human drop box effort called Democracy in the Park, which was illegal, um, allowing people to um, harvest ballots from nursing homes without the statutorily required bipartisan team to make sure nothing untoward went on. Um, uh, that was illegal. Uh, uh, Justice Gableman's report has uh, subsequently identified Wisconsin? that, that, that uh, turnout rates went from 20 to 30 percent in nursing homes to nearly 100 percent. And many of the ballots were in the same handwriting. <laughs> uh, these kind of things we all saw. Uh, and, uh, and, and to say that it was lacking any credibility whatsoever, such that no reasonable attorney would make such statements, uh, is what they have to be able to prove. And it's put us all on trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, I, wanna, I have a stat here in front of me because, uh, of course, I remember how could I forget that night. Uh, remember when they shut down the counting? We'd never seen anything like that. All of my years, I've never seen them stop counting the votes on election night for the president. And I just want to give people an idea. Someone took a screenshot of this. In Pennsylvania, at that point, Donald Trump was ahead by four points. In Michigan, he was ahead by 10. In Georgia, he was ahead by eight. Uh, in Wisconsin, he was ahead by seven. And those are just a few of the states. Uh, but suddenly, when uh, we woke up the next morning, uh, Don, uh, President uh, to be, President to be Biden was way, way ahead. Suddenly we had all of these votes. Um, but, John, I, I, here's the thing. I don't need to tell you that in the DNA of um, uh, the powers that be, the people in Washington, the leadership, even conservatives that you and I know, and the DNA is uh, this thing that there was no election fraud, there was no real, not enough to make a difference I've heard people that I uh, know and trust say that. I know that's not true. I know that's not true because I covered these things myself. Uh, but um, what is the most egregious example? I mean, you have gone through, I know briefly just now, a few of those, uh, but you really did itemize them and go into detail. And I'm sh- with John Klingenstein on that interview, I want to commend uh, to all of you. It's at Sandy Rios, uh, at Sandy Rios tweet. Um uh, you go into a lot of detail. If you could just give us one example in a little more de- a detail of of why in one state uh, there was such fraud or deceit or regulation breaking that no doubt President Trump would have won, what would that be? Well, so and let me just uh, make one slight correction. It's Tom Klingenstein. He would be, oh, I would sorry. be remiss in not correcting that since he's the chairman of my board. Uh, okay, okay, but, uh, sorry. Uh, the, the, the one, so, you know, I mean, they talk about the Georgia audits. Well, they weren't audits, they were recounts. Um, and the recounts uh, uh, itself, people have to understand the process. So they, they recount ballots at 100 or 200 at a time, they write the tally down on a chit a batch sheet, and then they turn those batch sheets in, and then somebody enters the batch sheet data into a computer, and then they never see it again. So there's no kind of reverse verification. Um, The batch sheets, uh, a a group of ladies down in Georgia collected all the batch sheets and counted them up, and they were massively different than the numbers that were reported in the recount. But the thing that I thought was most extraordinary is – um, as they're doing this recount, Fulton County, which you know just seems to not be able to get anything right, 
uh, was uh, their recount tally was about 17,000 votes different than what the, what had been reported on, you know, in on election night. And and a few hours before the deadline for getting the recount in, they magically found 16,889 or whatever the number was, a ballot, so that things would reconcile. Now, the reason that's so significant is uh, one of the analysts that looked at the State Farm Arena and saw uh, uh, ballots being run through machines multiple times says that if those machines were operating at full speed for the whole two hours, they were alone in violation of Georgia law, counting those ballots, and they ran them through three times each or something, that would be about 18,000 ballots, which looks extraordinary like the missing number of missing ballots on the recount that suddenly magically appeared at the 11th hour. Um, I think that may well be one of the most egregious ones. Um, but the nursing home, the nursing home scam in, uh, in, in Wisconsin uh, certainly competes with that title for that title because uh, Wisconsin law is very clear because, because people in nursing homes are susceptible for, to undue pressure and undue influence and undue coercion to vote a certain way. They have very important checks if you're going to go in a nursing home to help people with their ballots, uh, it's got to be a bipartisan team of, of, of official uh, uh, people that go in to make sure that there's nothing going untoward going on. Uh, the Secretary of State of Wisconsin prohibited that from occurring, ostensibly because of COVID. Uh, and then what we saw was, you know, uh, not just illegality, because everything that was collected in those nursing homes was in violation of state law. But because a lot of the ballots were in the same handwriting, it's an illegality that opened the door for fraud that is demonstrable. Uh, and that issue alone uh, affected more ballots, according to Justice Gableman's report, uh, than the um, small 20,000 and some odd votes margin uh, in Wisconsin. So these are the kind of things that we saw. And this doesn't even get into the, the, the massive switch and turnaround uh, after things were shut down and then all of a sudden magically, you know, thousands appear. We've got we've got evidence, for example, of more votes being cast in Pennsylvania than voters. Um, and uh, uh, Representative Frank Ryan pointed this out in December and the secretary of state poo pooed it and said, well, not all of the counties have uploaded their data. So we it's not been able to be reconciled yet. Well, as I understand Pennsylvania law, you're not supposed to certify until that reconciles. <laughs> they were 200,000 off, just a little bit. Yeah. And uh, these a... are the kind of things that went on. And even after all of the counties had finished their work, it was still 120,000 off. And, and to this day, one of the precincts in one of the counties in, around Philadelphia shows more votes than voters in that precinct. It's a small precinct, but it was, I, I forget, you know, 59 votes versus 38 voters or something in the precinct. Uh, I mean, these things are not supposed to happen, and when they do happen, there ought to be an investigation of what went on and did it affect the outcome of the election, and it's that investigation we never really got. Yeah, John, but, but wait a second. There, I, I've heard, oh, this is what I've heard, that, oh, look, the courts, they went, that went before the courts, and they, they all they saw nothing was there. There was nothing to see. None of the courts uh, found in favor of the notion that there was election malfeasance. Is that true? Well, that's that's not true. There were, you know, I mean, depending on how you count and how how many of the cases that were brought before the election, you include in the number, somewhere between sixty-five and a hundred 
cases. And then if you go back the whole election cycle and look at Mark Elias's efforts, I think there were as many as 400 cases brought trying to alter the law uh, uh, going in unconstitutionally, in my view. Um, but in almost most of the instances, the cases were not decided on the merits. A couple of cases decided on the merits, um, one up in Michigan, improperly so, because it was decided on competing affidavits without a hearing. And one of the justices on the Supreme Court said, we're not allowed to do that. You know, on a motion to dismiss, you have to take the, the allegations as true unless they're not, you know, facially not credible. Well, these were all very credible, sworn affidavits and expert reports. Uh, and so you have you have even on the couple of cases that were actually decided on the merits, uh, real problems with with the judicial process on how that went on. Um, but most weren't decided on the merits. Um, some courts said uh, this person has no standing. We have no jurisdiction. And then went it on to discuss the merits which is improper. The Supreme Court's made very clear, if you have no jurisdiction, you can't opine about what the merits are. That's an unconstitutional advisory opinion. So we've got a couple of those. Um, but but, but uh, the, the real problem, and this goes back to the authoritarian point I made earlier, is, is when they did look at the merits, they just simply said, well, that's your evidence and your people, and they really don't know what they're talking about because they're just ordinary citizens. The government has said the opposite. And, of course, the government knows what they're talking about. So the idea here is when the government speaks, we're all just supposed to bend the knee and be quiet. Yes. This is well, an authoritarian move. <laughs> and in well, my trial, i got to be very careful uh, uh, on, on how I characterize the proceedings. Yes, because you're mid-trial. We are going to have some issues you're... with some of the judges' rulings. But I'll talk yeah. about um, uh, one ruling. I won't talk about the judges' ruling. I will talk about um, the government's response. Um, okay. uh, some of our expert witnesses who were going to testify about analyses they'd done after the election that demonstrated that the things I was saying were true, uh, that was excluded because it occurred after the uh, after the, the time period, and therefore I couldn't have relied on it at the time. And Say then the, during so the chief this past week, they introduced a couple of government audits after the fact that said everything was hunky-dory and all fine. And we objected, you know, based on the prior ruling. And and when they said, you know, when they had the, uh, the the opportunity to respond to our objection, they said, well, that's just because those were private audits. Uh, ours were the government's, <laughs> and 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 therefore you've got to let it in. Uh, this notion that when the government, and one of the one of the allegations against me is that I continued to say that there were problems with the election after Bill Barr said there wasn't. And yes. I had lots of evidence to show that what Bill Barr was saying wasn't based in any evidence, and I had evidence. Uh, but because Bill Barr said it, or the head of SISA said this was the most secure election in history, I mean, anybody that saw what went on knows how laughable that is. But because they said it, um, we're supposed to just simply bow and say, okay, well, that's over then. I mean, think about every litigation there is. As soon as the government weighs in and says, well, we have a different view of that, we're supposed to what? Just withdraw the litigation? Oh, okay, well... You know, forgive us, uh, you know, Mr. Master, uh, yeah. uh, the government has spoken and we shouldn't challenge it because we're no longer a free people. John, did I understand that something like four out of five of the people that you wanted to call were not allowed to testify on your behalf? Uh, four out of the six uh, uh, expert witnesses, and then they've now on Friday filed a motion in Lemonade to block nine more of our fact witnesses. Um, and so we'll we'll know we'll know later this week whether they're all going to be blocked from testifying as well. 
Now let me ask you this because I've heard you 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 are your own best defense. And um will do they let you talk? Can you defend yourself? Oh, yeah. So so I was their first witness and uh you know the <laughs> Uh, you know, I said, they asked me, I, at one point they said, now one of the allegations you make is that in your response to our NDC, so they're now, now not only including things I said at the time, but things I said in my answer to their charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, you know, that we had evidence that, uh, that there were statutory changes made, uh, by elected officials who had no lawful authority to make them. The Constitution is very clear. The, the legislatures uh, uh, are the ones that have to um, uh, direct the manner of choosing presidential electors. And they made those changes. And I said, uh, with the intent to benefit the Biden campaign. I said, what evidence do you have of intent? And I said, I said well, um, everybody knew because of the way the campaign were being run that the Democrats were focusing more on mail-in ballots and the Republicans were focusing more on in-person ballots. So uh, when the Secretary of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, a Democrat, eliminates signature verification for mail-in ballots, I just put two and two together and figure that's uh, that's uh, done with an intent to help the Biden campaign because that's what they were focusing. <laughs> and in fact, it did. And then the other one is – and there's another law in Pennsylvania – that says when all the mail-in ballots come in, you're supposed to lock them away and not doing anything with them until 7 a.m. on Election Day. And then you start pre-canvassing. Uh, and none of the information learned during the pre-canvass can be disclosed until after the close of polls. Well, the night before, on Monday evening, the, one of the deputy secretaries of state sent an email around saying, we're going to give you – the names of voters who's, uh, uh, we've identified as disqualified during the pre-canvas so that they can get to the polls and cure their ballot or cast a provisional <laughs> ballot. Well, that was illegal. But, but three days earlier, I, I didn't know it was three days earlier. I, I knew like four or five hours earlier, the Democrats in Philadelphia were advertising uh, for, employee, uh, for, for people to do a, you know, day work $400 they were going to be paid for the day to help with their ballot curing operation. So they had already gotten advance word that this was going to happen. And I said, so I just put two and two together and figured that was that was designed to help Democrats and since they gave them advance word, apparently. So these are the kind of things that uh, that we saw and that uh, that they're questioning me about during uh, during yeah. their uh it's their direct examination of me, but it's really a direct examination of uh, a hostile witness. So it's really like a cross-examination. All right. There's so much more to say, John, but I, because I, they're here, you're in the middle of the trial uh, right now. And you have, we, you and I could talk forever, but I don't think we should because I know you have a lot to do. Uh, I, I want to say, though, we have to make something clear. Uh, much of the uh, fury at you was because on uh, January the 6th, then, before leading up to that, you wrote a, 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 a legal paper suggesting, urging President uh, Mike Pence, the Vice President Mike Pence, not to accept the electors as presented, but to delay for, postpone for like seven to ten days. Uh, President, uh, Vice President Pence uh, harumphed and said he couldn't do that. It was He just couldn't do it. It wasn't constitutional. And that's kind of been the line. So, uh, that the, you've been a terrible no-good person because you've suggested something that's never been done before. Uh, and Vice President Pence was put in this moral dilemma, which I believe is hooey, and we've talked about it before. 
But my understanding is that his attorney, Greg Jacob, is actually coming out saying some things helpful to you right now. Is that right? Well, he he, he did. Uh, look, he, he had written a memo to uh, Vice President Pence on December 8th saying that, that there, you know, there's a very serious scholarly dispute about whether the vice president has a significant role or only a ministerial role in the counting of the ballots uh, on January 6th. Uh, and, uh, and, and he went through a little bit of the history uh, and said that, that, you know, the issue, therefore, is very muddy. But assuming that we're just going to, you know, go, go along with the Electoral Count Act rather than assert your constitutional prerogatives and challenge it as unconstitutional, here's what will happen. So that right there shows it's an open question, which is all I've ever said. This thing has exactly. never been resolved on what the role of the vice president is. And given given the admitted illegality in the conduct of the election, which is unconstitutional because it was done without legislative authority, um, what do we do about it? And by the way, the memos, the memos uh, only saw the light of day 10 months later. Pence's people have admitted they never saw them, that they weren't part of our meetings. Um, I'm not even I, I'm not even aware whether they were given to President Trump. All I know is I and, and the, the, the memo itself doesn't make a recommendation. It just lays out nine different scenarios that were being talked about just so we had it all in one place as, as internally we were discussing what our options were. Uh, five of the scenarios has Biden winning. <laughs> so, so I suppose I could say my memo supported Biden winning because there were more five scenarios said Biden won and four said Trump won. <laughs> so, so um, you know, uh, much, much has been made of those things as if as if I had arch- been the architect of this stuff when that memo just simply put down on paper uh, the many different things that were being talked about so that in our internal deliberations, we could try and steer a a, a course that seemed to be best suited to confront the truly unconstitutional conduct we were dealing with. But I think the point that I want to make, John, is that you, John, in your memo, made the same point that Pence, Vice President Pence's attorney, made in his memo, whatever that was, that it's an open question. And President, uh, Vice President Pence has been... the same thing a dozen times in his his sworn deposition testimony before the January 6th committee. Um... The legal scholars uh, that had looked at this stuff, uh, uh, they either agreed with me or at least acknowledged it was a plausible position, even if they disagreed with it. Um, uh, so, uh, And then, of course, the historical record on which they base those statements uh, similarly has people speaking from every direction. Uh, even Congress, which you know has a vested interest in saying we're the ones that have the power, not the vice president, um, even Congress, in one, you know, the the most hotly contested uh, uh, election and disputed electoral count we've had is 1876, when Congress created uh, uh, the Electoral Count Commission to try and resolve the real constitutional crisis, they delegated to it what what powers it had, if any. So even then, Congress is uncertain on whether it had power to do anything, whether that power was vested elsewhere. Um, but they were facing a constitutional crisis, and they did it. Um, you know, this, this uh, you know, disputed question, the notion that lawyers can't press things that are disputed to try and get them resolved. I mean, think about how many, I mean, think about how many lawyers uh, advocating for their clients um, push, push for new interpretations or expanded interpretations of the law. This is what we do and what we exactly. are ethically obligated to do on behalf of our clients. All right. Well, just to be clear, so, John, for 
daring to say that the election was not a fair election and for daring to ask the vice president which constitutionally to just hold off on accepting those initial electors until the states had a chance to kind of figure out what was going on because it was very confusing and complicated. Uh, you have been tarred and feathered. Uh, you are now facing the potential loss of your bar license. You have lost jobs, positions. It's been a horrific thing that's happened to you. And I just, I don't know if you quickly can sort of quantify what this has cost you and your family, even financially. Well, financially, uh, if people go to my uh, Legal Defense Fund site, you'll see that we've raised over $400,000 now, including 100000 in just the last month, which is immensely helpful. Wow. But, but our, our, our total legal liability, uh, we, we don't even know the answer to this yet, but it's, it's uh, probably three-quarters of a million to a million somewhere when all of, the, all of the bills and the legal work gets in. I've got lawyers working in California, in New Mexico, in Georgia, in D.C., uh, and even a very prominent attorney out of Boston uh, uh, who's uh, uh, left of center, li- liberal libertarian, left of author of the book Three Felonies a Day, Harvey Silverglade, who <laughs> decades ago pointed out the danger of what the government is doing with vague statutes and criminalizing everything. Anyway, so it's an expensive proposition, but I thought it was important. More yeah. important is the toll it's taking us. We've had protesters down the end of our street, been there every day, except when it got cold, for a year. And uh, and people have spiked our driveway and taken out uh, two sets of tires and spray-painted on the road to our house, Eastman Trader, and our address, which is like open invitation to vandalism. And people have vandaled, thrown feces. We live along in Arroyo, thrown feces at our, at our house or piled it high at the foot of our mailbox and this kind of stuff. So, I mean, this kind of petty thing just wears on you after a while. Yeah. But, but, uh, but we are resolute because um, if we bow to this, uh, and I'll close with this, the, the leader of the 65 Project uh, gave an interview to Axios Magazine. 65 Project is this outfit called 65 Project because of the 65 cases, they claim, of, that, of election thing. Our goal is not only to get every lawyer that was involved in those cases disbarred, but to make them so toxic in their firms and their communities that no right-wing legal talent will ever want to take on these election challenges again. Now, that, that, that would be the end of our adversarial system, uh, and it would, it would clear a path to do whatever you want in future elections, knowing that nobody will be able to, or willing to stand up and call foul and fight it and litigate it. Uh, that, I think, is the bigger picture of what's going on, and I just happen to be um, you know, the the uh, cause celeb on the left to well, be you know the what? target for it. That sounds like another interview for you and I when things, when the dust settles, because I'd like to know more about that and I want people to know about it. But for right now, you can go to givesengo.com slash Eastman. Givesengo.com slash Eastman. You can find, you can watch part of the trial. You can help him financially. You can send a message. You can pray, all kinds of things. But if you'd like to support John and his family, and I hope that each and every one of you will in some way, uh, go to uh, givesengo.com slash Eastman. John, I know you have to go off to trial. Uh, We wish you all the best. In fact, I'm going to pray for you for just a second. Allow me, please. Father, I just pray that you be with John. Um, I hear that he understands who you are and your sovereignty and power, and for that we're very grateful. But on the practical level, I pray that you would give him a, a spine of steel, help him not to waver, and thank you, Lord, for giving us a man who has this kind of courage at this time in the nation's history. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, John, Again, go forth. Thank you, Sandy. Go forth, John. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was uh, quite the interview. I, I know it's hard for me to be unbiased because I have I have such great respect for John. Uh, and because I covered the election so thoroughly, this was saw when others would not talk about it. I was hanging in there because I saw it myself. I know people in these various states who know firsthand. They were there uh, watching the malfeasance, reporting on it, and they were ignored, as John said, like they were just average citizens. What did they know? So I steadfastly agree with him on what he reports. I trust him, uh, and I'm just, I hope that you will help him. I do. I just hope you'll help him. Go to gifsongo.com slash Eastman and uh, help him in any way that you can. Um, I want to remind you that you can call us if you've heard something that upset you or that you liked. You can call us at 662-821-2040 uh, and make your comment, and we'll use it on the air. I try to, unless, unless you're not nice, too nice, unless you're really bad, and then I won't play it. But if you're nice and kind, even if you're criticizing, we'll play it. 662-821-2040, or you can go to sandy at afr.net, sandy at afr.net, and write me an email. And uh, our website is up and running, sandyrios.com, sandyrios.com. You can go there. It's kind of a repository for all the things we're doing. Uh, plus it... Um, and finally, I just have to say again, it's up and running. We, this has been long in the making. We had a lot of problems initially when we started the show with some of our social media uh, situations, and I won't go into that, but let's just say it's uh, it's fixed, and now we're up and running, and I'm very happy to say that sandyrios.com is ready. All right, so um, coming up next, Bruce is going to join me to talk about, you know, Bruce is an attorney, was with the FBI. He, he knows the legal part of this better than I, plus he was in California for years uh, so our discussion on this should be valuable to you. So uh, I hope you'll stay tuned. But first, I'd like to take a moment to recognize the over 64 million babies whose lives were taken as a result of that decision by the Supreme Court in 1973. And we pray for all those moms that made that decision to, to terminate their babies' lives because I know they still mourn. Most of them do. When they get older, they remember this. They remember the birthday. They will never forget that. We pray for them, and we'd like to prevent more of that from happening in the future. If you would like to help, we are asking, because of the year anniversary, uh, for a donation of $64. That would be in honor of the 64 million babies whose lives were taken. It's $64 is a great amount, kind of in, in honor of that uh, celebration of that day, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. If you'd like to do that, and if you can, if you're able, go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. And of course, you can give a donation of any amount, uh, it, you know, whatever you can afford, we will be very grateful for and put it to good use. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios, back with you, and this time with my sweetheart, the attorney, the former the retired FBI agent, uh, to kind of weigh in on this stuff that he knows better than I. Uh, Bruce, that, that was, there's so much to say about that, so I'm really curious to know which part of that you want to, you have a comment about what grabbed your attention. Well, I think while John's personal situation is very important and the facts of what did or did not go on in the 2020 election are important, the real core issue that I fear after listening to John's comments are when he talks about things like the 65 Project. Yep. 
because this is an attack on all of us. I know we've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. The, the you know, there's a, a lot of machinations going on here, um, a, a bar review uh, complaint against John. Uh, but what really is going on here is that the left, through, the, through mechanisms like the California bar, are trying to intimidate and eliminate attorneys that will represent people that have conservative views. Um, this, you know, I, I, an attorney has to be able to communicate with his client and have those communications remain private. Uh, you've heard of the attorney-client privilege. What that means is, say you, wanna, uh, you have a lawsuit and you go in and speak to your attorney, anything and everything you say to that attorney is to be kept in confidence. Like talking to your pastor. Yeah. It, or and counselor. The only way it is to be released and can be released is if you as the client give the attorney permission to talk about it, or you discuss with your attorney, I'm going to commit a crime, and then the attorney has to go ahead and release it and let law enforcement know. Um, there was none of that in this situation. From what I can gather, this memorandum was written by John Eastman for President Trump discussing the possible actions that could be taken regarding whether or not there had been voter fraud uh, committed in the election and whether or not the counting of the electoral votes could be delayed, not stopped. They, you know, people say, oh, they were trying to stop the election from being certified. That is not true. They were discussing the possibility of can Vice President Pence, in his power, delay the counting of the electoral votes for a week to 10 days to determine if, if, if anything was going to come of these investigations in these various states. And Bruce, let me, let me interject that several states had requested this. This, this wasn't just John's yes. brainchild. Uh, they were struggling back in Michigan. They were struggling in uh, Pennsylvania. They were trying to sort things out because they knew there had been malfeasance. I don't know what else to call it. There had been all kind of laws broken, laws changed unconstitutionally, rules uh, modified, and they wanted time to have some time to sort things out in their own state. They requested it. In fact, the Congress was filled with representatives and senators who were making the case from their own states, hold off, hold off. So it wasn't just John Eastman's idea about this. And the government has taken that memo and now morphed it into that John Eastman helped to incite a riot mm -hmm. at the Capitol on January 6th. He merely wrote a memo and he, he addressed the crowd. He never called for any action that even came close to any kind of a threat or violence. He laid out that there may be a possibility that the election needs to be uh, stayed until we can, the election results need to be stayed until we can do a, a proper investigation. Um, Bruce, can I interject something else? I'm sorry, I just, for, you talked about uh, attorney client privilege. And in that report on MSNBC, it reminded me, they took John's phone. Yes. They took, which would have had in it all the correspondence, all the back and forth with all of his clients, all over the country. They took his phone and all the contents of it. I wanted to say hi to those people that looked at the phone and saw my number. Hi. hi. So, but, but seriously, Bruce, that's, that's, how, that's terrible. 
they knew everything he was doing and saying. And that's why I say that this goes much deeper than what's being portrayed, that John uh, is in trouble with the California bar. You know, these administration, the Biden administration people love to use the term, our democracy is at stake. (laughs) Yes, they do. They they apply that to everything. It's so overused by them. But in this case, I think it's very applicable because we are talking about a number of rights. Your First Amendment right to protest, to assemble, your and the attorney-client privilege. Believe me, um, um, our system of business, our system of justice cannot function without the attorney-client privilege. Um, you know, I I was looking at the uh, the judge who's hearing John's case. And I'm not going to go into her name or anything, but she's a former immigration attorney in California. Now, every attorney that I've ever known that's worked immigration cases, they have a very frank discussion with people, especially if they've come into the country illegally. They're already here, and they want to know, how can I stay here? So often they discuss, you know, um, uh, you're going to be given a court date. You do not have to appear no, for the court up. date, and nothing will happen to you. Uh, if you have a baby here, it will become what we call an anchor baby, and you will no longer be deported. Um, if you walk across the border instead of trying to go through the channels uh, and you claim political asylum, you will be granted uh, yeah, the, admission. Yeah, These are the now, words to say in order yeah, to be able to the, stay. Now, do you think any of these immigration attorneys have ever been charged by the California bar with violating the Constitution for doing that? And those are constitutional violations, some of them if the person that they're counseling actually does them. Now, that doesn't mean the attorney is liable for that. The attorney has just advised the client of their options. That's what an attorney does. Some of us may not like the options that they advise them are available, but that's the way the system is set up. And John Eastman advised President Trump of his options. You know what I think is really scary to go, to go away from here a little bit is this present indictment of Donald Trump for these 37 counts of, of having these boxes of documents. If you look at the quote-unquote evidence that was used to bring these charges, I think a lot of it came from his former attorneys. Yes, they're yes, ta- exactly. They're, they're talking about, he asked, should I get rid of this box? Should I get rid of this document? Yes. Well, who heard that conversation? Donald Trump's attorneys. Yeah. And once again, it shows the double standard. You know, we, we go crazy that there is a double uh, there's a double standard for justice in the United States. This is a prime example of it. Donald Trump's attorneys should not be talking to the Justice Department. They should be exerting, um, they should be claiming attorney-client privilege of what he told me, and that's the end of it. And of all the, the um, people that should respect that, it should it's be the attorney. Department of Justice, which is full of attorneys. But it, but for an attorney to do that, how could you ever trust them to to represent you? And, and they all have. I'm sure there are exceptions, but I'd say his notable, notably his even the White House counsel, 
uh, was not discreet. He was, and he was stabbing President Trump in the back the whole time he was there, too. That was so yeah. disgusting the, to me. The, when I went through law school, they really emphasized following ethics. The American Bar Association um, promulgated a, uh, what they would call the optimum set of ethics that a person should follow. And I'm reading from the American Bar Association right here. A lawyer may discuss the legal consequences of any proposed course of conduct with a client and may counsel or assist the client to make a good faith effort to determine the validity, scope, meaning, or application of the law. Think about what John Eastman just told us in preparation of that memo. He prepared a number of scenarios that might occur, and as he told you, often they, they favored Biden. Yeah, exactly. They didn't favor Trump. Yeah. That is exactly what an attorney is supposed to do. Yeah. Well, I, I, a couple of things here uh, about the trial, and then we, we have to wrap up for today. Uh, the judge, whose name I won't mention either, I, there's someone who's watching the trial. A lot of people are. Rachel Alexander is someone who's watching it faithfully, and this is her, her take on what's happened. It's been, uh, at, this, the re, at the time that we're recording this, the trial's been going on for almost a week, and it's going to now go through a second week. Uh, the judge keeps interrupting John Eastman as he's trying to merely answer the questions. She raises her voice, excuse me, it's frankly rude and annoying. I believe she's doing it deliberately to be rude and show how much she despises him. That's Rachel Alexander's take on this. Uh, and you heard John say that four of the six experts that he's called, and one of them, I believe, was Janice Rogers Brown, who was a candidate for Supreme Court. She's a high-ranking um, judge in the state of California, and she was going to testify for him. She couldn't. They wouldn't let her testify. Uh, and then now we know that nine out of ten of his uh, witnesses or nine, I don't know if there were ten, but nine of his witnesses on evidence now are being blocked from uh, from testifying. It's just, it's a kangaroo court. It's terrible. It's really, we've I don't know how we got to this, but we have to fight back, and that's why we're bringing it to your attention. If you'd like to help John, go to givesongo.com slash Eastman. That's givesongo.com slash Eastman. Remember that you can hear John's long interview where he really does spell out the election malfeasance on Sandy, at Sandy Rios tweet. If you go to Twitter and you, if you don't use Twitter, it might be a good time to sign up for that. That is where I'm really commenting mostly now. It's at Sandy Rios tweet. Um, and then you can always call us at 662-821-2040. You can go to sandyrios.com. One last practical mention. It's come to our attention that uh, there's some phones are having difficulty using the app, and so that's why I'm saying if you go to sandyrios.com, you can listen to the show that way, or you can go to any uh, podcast platform, any other platform, whatever you choose. Uh, if you're having trouble uh, on your phone listening, whatever platform you're using now, is that clear? Go to sandyrios.com, and it'll help you figure that out. All right, honey, thanks for joining me, and uh, we just have to keep praying for John because it affects all of us. Thank you for joining me. All right, thanks for listening to today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7.